Hey everybody, this is Alf speaking. Welcome back to the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. Today, it's my pleasure to host Warren Pies, who's the co-founder of 314 Research and a great expert in commodities market across the board. Hi, Warren. How are you doing? Hey, Alf. I'm doing well. Uh, excited to be here. Been a long time fan of your work. Yeah, too kind. So let's try to... Uh, share some insights out of the commodity market for the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel people. Uh, I'm going to start from a very uh, high-level question, which is we have seen commodities rally across the board for basically a year plus, five quarters almost. Uh, there has been a divergence of late where you see some of the commodity space getting a bit of a hit. I'm talking about copper, for example, uh, while certain other commodities have held up extremely well, remarkably well. Can you give people a broad overview of where do you think we stand in the commodities market? And also, if you can uh, disentangle some of the sectors within the commodity space that are maybe behaving differently and why? Yeah, it's a great place to start the conversation. Uh, I think it would be it's, it is impossible to talk about commodities without talking about Russia, Ukraine, because that was the bomb that went off in commodity markets. And it's really difficult to um I think overemphasize that. I think it gets um, underemphasized by generalists and generalists don't appreciate the situation we're dealing with now. And so that's where I would start. And, you know, obviously oil, energy, natural gas, and some food commodities were the most impacted commodities out of the, out of the conflict. Uh, copper, industrial metals, uh, like you're, re you're referencing, obviously that's not a, that's not an area where supply is getting hit because of the, the conflict. Um, really high level, as we moved on from the, the, uh, the conflict in Ukraine, China obviously went back to zero COVID. And zero COVID in, in China, that's taking demand offline for a number of commodities. And copper is probably, you know, China is something like 50% of marginal copper demand in the world. And so you, if, if China goes offline, copper is going to suffer. Now, the unique and interesting point here of the most recent spate of lockdowns is that typically if uh, China locks down, you know, oil is going to you know, hit the floor and that didn't happen. And that's the instructive dichotomy that I think we would examine is that copper reacted how you would expect in a China lockdown, slowdown scenario, and oil did not. And that it goes right back to the Russia-Ukraine conflict and really needing to work through the implications of that conflict to understand the subsectors and what's going on specifically in oil, which I think is the most important commodity. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about oil as well, because a lot of people will probably want to hear about that first. And the way I look at it is that crude oil has held up basically close to the highs until last week where we saw kind of a flush out. But until last week, Crude oil had held up at the highs despite strategic petroleum reserve releases, despite China effectively locking down a relatively large portion of their economy. We're having a, a lot of headwinds as well from a, a slowing demand across the board in global economies, but nevertheless, oil is holding up there. And it's obviously relatively easy to point to the supply getting offline or more restricted from Russia, but can I get a download of yours on what's your perspective on crude oil from here, both from a short-term for short term, I mean three to six months, and from a long term perspective, help us understand where does oil stand here. Yeah, I think uh, you have to. There's been so many things. Let's just take a step back. There've been so many major uh, 
you know, multi-year events that have happened in just a few months. And so when you start thinking that, like how these are events that could affect us on the bearish side or bullish side. So obviously start with the conflict, Russia, Ukraine. So Russia, our, our estimate coming out of the, the, the conflict after the sanctioning appeared to be in motion was that we're probably going to lose something about 2 million barrels a day of oil supply off of that conflict. Now, to give you a little context, heading into the conflict, we were probably running a one and a half to two million barrel a day deficit in the world already. So we're looking at like a three and a half to four million barrel deficit. And those are with some pretty, I would say, favorable assumptions. We assumed that China was going to uptake more oil off of Russia, that India would be buying more oil. We assumed that the UAE and Saudi Arabia would also increase production, which they have. Um, and so we, we ended up with about a three and a half to four million barrel a day deficit, which is huge. You're talking about a market, the oil market, where about a half a million barrel a day deficit is normal. So anything like a lockdown of a major economy or a supply outage, even a tertiary producer is going to impact price. So we had a huge tidal wave that went, that went through the market here. So three and a half to four million barrel deficit, massive. We had a response, like you said, from not just the United States, but global SPR. We're talking about in the next six months, something about three to four million barrels a day of SPR oil is going to be sold into the market. So, you know, theoretically, that goes a lot of the gap that we were dealing with. And then we had China lockdown. So China locks down. That's it's really difficult to quantify the amount of oil per day. It's offline, but that's a huge event. And we saw oil hold up through all this. And more importantly, when you look through the price to the physical market, to how, how's the curve reacting? How are some of the near-term physical in indicators that we look at reacting? Everything was telling us the market remained tight. So, I, you know, maybe there, there's so many different ways to model supply and demand and how these two things interact. But ultimately, inventories and price and physical market indicators in this market they don't lie, for, at least for very long. So if you have record backwardation, that's telling us that we're in a deficit, a near-term deficit. So maybe that SPR oil isn't quite working its way into the market, for instance. So the, the bottom line is that for now, all of the physical indicators, inventory data that we look at are leaning bullish. But I can, if I did the supply and demand analysis, like an academic kind of exercise, I'd say, you know, the next three to six months could get sloppy because we have a lot of SPR oil sloshing around. And there are other issues, depending on how deep you want to go, like the lack of refining capacity. So we're now seeing uh, refined products trade at huge spreads to crude oil, which obviously is a, a bigger drag on the consumer and on ultimately demand than you would expect if you were just modeling demand destruction off of raw crude oil prices. And so there's some other nuances in the, in the equation. But um yeah, I think the next three to six months, you could get some consolidation of oil prices. But when I look out, I don't see an easy way out of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I think when the dust settles, there is going to still be that three and a half, four million barrel deficit. We're going to have very little spare capacity in the global market. And so ultimately, I, I think prices are going to go higher, a lot higher. And the final point before I know you want to ask a question, but the final point I'd make is that the average recession, when you talk about demand destruction, which everyone now is honed in on, demand destruction is going to have to balance this market. When you say demand destruction, you're really saying some kind of economic slowdown. The average recession kills about one and a half to two million barrels a day of oil demand. So 
when you think about three and a half to four million barrel a day deficit, we're not going to get there with a normal recession. And you go back to the GFC, the GFC killed just under four million barrels a day. So that's what we're talking about. Something like the GFC to take the, the demand offline. And the other potential avenue to kill that demand is through government rationing, which I do think is, is a high likelihood event. Wow, you said so much, Warren. Incredible download. Let's try to break it down for a second. So I first want to get a bit more of your thoughts about the backwardation of the oil curve. So this is a topic that is often discussed. Uh, macro generalists like myself that try to have a broader picture of different asset classes uh, sometimes can be uh, well, a bit naive about what that means. And I know you have an opinion about the backwardation of the curve. So let's start from there. Can you please explain what the backwardation really is and how do you look at it and why is that important? And then we'll pick it up because I have a bunch more questions. Your your intro was very interesting. Sure. Uh, this is an area of the market that I think I was, I've kind of gotten known for because I hammer home that the curve is not a prediction tool. It's a market management tool. What do I mean by that? So backwardation means just to start from the very beginning that the front month spot prices are trading at higher than outdated, farther out uh, months or, or years on the curve. And so the, the traditional thought or could be naive thought is that, hey, the market is predicting that these prices aren't going to last. So, so we're, prices today are going to go down. Look at what, you know, 2024 futures are trading at you know, or below that. So. The first thing I did, or one of the first things I did as an oil analyst was I ran, and I think I'm sure you could find this in a, a lot of different academic places as well, but I just ran, you know, studies, how well does the futures price predict the actual price in the future? And it doesn't work at all. There's very little predictive tool there. Um, so you have to ask what's really going on. And I think what's, what's really going on is that the futures curve is shifting and moving in ways to manage that front part that prompt deficit or oversupply whenever at any given point. So if we're in, if we're in deficit, meaning that supply is less than demand, then we need extra barrels to fill that gap. So the curve shifts into backwardation to create a premium on that front, that spot part of the curve, which is calling barrels out of storage. So we need extra barrels coming out of storage onto the market to balance it, to meet that demand. And that's that intersection of an efficient physical market, which is what the crude oil market is. On the other hand, and sometimes I think this is easier to see, especially when we went through COVID, was if you have a an oversupply in the market, then and especially a huge oversupply where we go into something called super contango, where the spot price goes way down and the back months go are way up relative to it. Well, in that case, the, the curve is really bending to try and manage the market. The curve is shifting to the steep contango and trying to push every marginal barrel into storage. And it's opening up the economics of every marginal uh, storage uh, location, including floating storage, which is what we saw during COVID. So every VLCC, VLCC rates went up because you could buy, store, rent a, a VLCC, put crude oil on it and sell it forward and make that money. And so that's what happens in super contango. The, the exact opposite is happening in backwardation. In both cases, the curve is moving to manage that front part of the market. So you don't want to take a, a signal from the curve. You want to take the curve and, and understand what it's telling you. That the, and in truth, it's telling you the market is either oversupplied or undersupplied. 
Yeah. So basically, your focus is to look at how the front end of the curve really moves. That is the real signal. The back end of the curve is rather a more pinned um, part of the curve, while the, the front end is the one that needs to rebalance effectively to accommodate either oversupply or a uh, you know an imbalance between demand and supply. And that's an important point. The other thing you said, which is very interesting, is you put out some numbers out there that help us understand what kind of demand destruction would be necessary to balance out the permanent deficits effectively or the long-lasting deficits we are looking at ahead of us. Those numbers were pretty impressive. So can I ask you to repeat them? And can I ask you to work out the assumption? So to, I'm going to ask yourself, Warren, where could this analysis be wrong? What could make this deficit less bad than you predict? But first, let's, let's walk through the number again. Sure. Uh, well, the, the number is, and this it goes back to from the very beginning, Russia producing 6.5 million barrels a day of crude and condensate, and then how much goes to China, about 2.5 million barrels. How much can China and India take up? About another 1 million. When we do all these numbers, you end up with about a three and a half to four million barrel a day deficit when the, the dust settles from this conflict. The numbers that are important for the audience, the average recession going back over recent history, over modern history, kills off about one and a half to two million barrels a day of oil demand. So the bottom line is the average recession wouldn't close that gap. If you're looking for just demand destruction to close that gap. If you go back and you're looking for an analog, when did we kill this much demand? Uh, the global financial crisis and COVID. That's the only cases where COVID, we killed 11 million barrels a day of demand by locking the entire economy down. There's that, there's that case. We killed just under 4 million barrels a day, peaked the trough of demand when it was the, during the GFC. So I think that's, the, um, that's what we're looking at. And that's why we're saying we're not this. We, before this, you know, there were whispers of stagflation, and we've pushed back against that because we didn't think the oil market was in, in dire straits. And you really don't have a, 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 pre, a precedent for stagflation outside of an oil crisis. Well, we now have that. And so this opens the, the window for potential stagflation is, is what I would say. The second question you had was, where could we be wrong? And there's a ton of places where we could be wrong. Number one, the, uh, the, most, the biggest risk to the market uh, I don't, I have a hard time seeing a path to this, but I've sought other people out who are more geopolitical experts than myself is a quick resolution to Russia, Ukraine. If you get a resolution there and we're able to kind of go back to the way it was on February 23rd, 2022, then a lot of this bullishness could theoretically be unwound. You would still have, I think, some geopolitical risk premium and try to picture a world realistically after that happens. I think there's still a bid for uh, oil and gas assets, hydrocarbon assets in these kind of um, safe jurisdictions. But that's a that's the first way you could be wrong is that this there could be a quick resolution, which my base case is there will not be a quick resolution here. I'd say number two would be you get more supply out of uh, the U.S. and shales in particular that helps close that gap. So you get a little bit of demand destruction, you get new supply coming online. There are some really big estimates coming out of the Permian Basin and some of these shale uh, regions for the next 24 months. And if that actually happens, we get through the supply bottlenecks and everything that's happening in the, on the ground in the U.S. oil patch, then 
that's a place where we could be wrong. Um, and then the final place I think where we definitely could be wrong is um, you could see continued SPR releases. I think governments could decide to, to, to try their best to fill that gap while supply catches up. So there are a few different paths being wrong for sure. So one thing I wanted to touch upon with you, Warren, and first before I get there, um, it's always nice to have uh, an analyst going through the baseline under which you could be wrong or the assumptions that could go wrong. And you're very honest with your take, and I really appreciate that because we don't have a crystal ball, kind of a base case, but you know, we always have to assume or look out for where we could be wrong. You do that very well, and that's why you're a very effective analyst, I believe. Now I want to get your take on the level of oil prices that would um, somehow have a reflexivity effect in demand destruction. So there has been a lot of chatter, right, about, well, this is a level of oil price where people just can't afford it anymore. Over time, a sustained high level of oil price where they can't drive anymore or the flight tickets become too expensive. And there is some sort of, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy of demand destruction. I have a certain theory about that, but what I want to get your take on how bad does it need to be for how long before demand destruction actually happens from that perspective, if you believe it does happen. Yeah, I think uh, our analysis was like about 5% of global GDP. When oil starts costing about 5% of global GDP, that's when you have historically seen demand destruction come along. And there are caveats to that, and there's, it's very difficult to forecast demand destruction, truthfully. Anyone who, it's easy to make headlines, it's hard to actually do it. But um, that, that I think is a good marker. Now, the thing that complicates it is like I, one, something I referenced earlier, which is we did have a lot of refining capacity come offline during uh, the pandemic. And Russia was a big refiner of crude oil and exporter of refined products. So that has also come off of the, out of the refined product mix. And just to step back, crude oil is refined by an oil refinery. So we don't put crude oil, obviously, in our cars or planes or any motor vehicles. And so we have to refine it into diesel and gas oil and little distillates and gasoline. And those, those stocks have been under pressure going all the way back to last year in the energy crisis coming out of Europe. And so that is, a, that is when you think about demand destruction, you would historically say 5% of GDP, $150 oil is roughly where you're at. Well, we're already at $175 oil when you account for current refined product pricing. So that's about 7% of, uh, of the cost of global GDP in refined products right now. And so that's a complicating factor. You have to consider the fact that that's what the, the economy is actually running off of. So having $175 refined products, you could have oil prices stay down here and you're killing a lot of demand. At the same time, if refining margins start to ease up, but oil price, but, it, but oil is going up and refined uh, product prices stay the same, then you could, uh, you, it might be $150 oil, but you're getting the same level of demand destruction. Yeah. And this is a relatively similar assessment to the one I've made. So I, instead of looking at a percentage of GDP, what I've done is look at oil prices. I wasn't smart enough to include refined products that would have been smarter. But what I did on a simplistic basis was look at oil prices from and divide those with the amount of spendable bank deposits in the system and then also divide those by real wages. So obviously, as a, basically try to measure 
how expensive is oil against the disposable income. Let's say the the money that is coming in into Americans or Europeans' pockets at the end of the of the um, of the month, adjusted for inflation, or for the amount of spendable bank deposits in the system. That would be another analogy where basically we say, look, governments have done a lot of fiscal handouts that have been basically not offset by an increase in taxes over the last fifteen years. So these bank deposits have been spent. Slash are still in the system. Um, Banks have lent, have created more money. Not all of these loans have been repaid back. So there has been a creation of new spendable money in the system. And wages have also adjusted a bit up in real terms over the last 10 to 15 years. So $100 oil now today is not the same as $100 oil 20 years ago because of that. So I try to standardize and adjust for a denominator in a similar way you do with nominal GDP. And I reach a relatively similar conclusion where basically a... a, a you know, dangerous sustained oil price is round about $150, $170 for a sustained period of time. Now you make the smart point that refined products are already at that level. So how does this coincide with your thesis that effectively you believe oil prices on the base case are supposed to go higher from here? How can the, the, the private sector withstand that pressure, sustained pressure over time? They, well, I think that it, the the unfortunate truth is that there's a it's a pretty bad outlook that you know when, when supply is that constrained we will we will kill off demand but it's kind of a slow process it's going to start in emerging economies it's going to start into bleed into Europe I think Europe is in worse shape than the United States and then the final domino fall will be the United States which happens to be where we have the best data and clearest uh, point and that's you know, we have something like $2.7 trillion of excess savings in the U.S. because of all the fiscal stimulus that we did during the pandemic. So I think it's a long slog right, where it gives a runway actually for oil prices to go up in the face of whittling down demand globally. Um, so that's kind of the way I look at it is that we've got if we go too far too fast early on, I mean, that would, I think, shorten things. I think you could get a, a stronger policy response, number one, which could be a feedback loop, but you would also get immediate consumer changes, which would uh, hasten that demand destruction story. But if we have this slow boil where we're at 125 refined product prices come down and we get crack spreads normalizing, so maybe the consumer's at 140, 150 or something for a sustained period of time and you go up and down, yeah, I think it would be a slow, slow bleed. Is how I see it, and with us, and eventually prices leak higher, though. And, more. and Warren, is your long-term bullish thesis in the face of some demand destruction? And again, it will depend from the pace of oil adjustments over time. Is that reflected as well in other commodities? What is your take on other, let's say, industrial or agricultural commodities going forward? I think that it's a. Uh... It's a different animal. Every commodity runs on kind of its own cycle, its own investment cycle. Something I've found is that you can, it, it, I would call it a multi-year mean reverting cycle based off of kind of like how supply and demand lag with each other. And each, you have one environment where you invest a dollar and then that investment comes to fruition and becomes actual supply in a, many years potentially into the future. And industrial metals are on the longest time lag. And we already had a lot of secular demand and there hasn't been a lot of investment there. And so, uh, but I don't think it's a, that's going to be a, 
that's going to be an interesting one. It depends on this transition, the green transition and everything else that's going into industrial metal demand. Agricultural commodities, I think, will sort themselves out faster than uh, than oil. It's on a, That's the shortest cycle, if you were talking about that mean reverting cycle, um, because you can plant and harvest every year. And I think that those things were going to have some tough times here, but price will ration and that's going to hurt probably more emerging economies, um, honestly, than developed economies. We'll get higher prices and, and things like that, of course. And then finally, you'll, you're back to oil and, and gas as a cycle. And I think that's going to be kind of the middle of the road. The typical oil gas cycle that we've looked at, it runs about eight years. So you know, there is short cycle projects like shale, which can come online faster, but Ultimately, you need about, you know, six, eight years to bring a new project, a long cycle project online. And so you got to have the, the right incentive structure from governments, which is something we haven't talked about. You have to have the right policy to create the environment where these companies are going to spend money. And that's across the board, but I think it's particularly of interest in the, in the hydrocarbon area. And then you need to have stable prices, a stable outlook and capital markets that are receptive. And right now, I would say kind of almost all of those ingredients are missing to make these long-term investments for the, the oil and gas industry. So it's kind of a tough, I think it's a higher price future, however you slice it. For especially yeah. for and now just to top off the interview, there is one topic we haven't really discussed. And I want to get your take on that, which is how government policy can influence investments in oil and gas, especially going forward. Um, give us your download from that perspective. Do you see something changing anytime soon or we're going to just ESG everything away from uh, the oil and gas industry? Uh, I think that there, there are real physical, real world constraints that are going to impose themselves on policymakers and they can either, you know, work with those or fight against those. And I, I mean, how that goes, that, that those are political questions somewhat, but uh, this morning, it was just a rumor on Twitter. I saw that the Biden administration is thinking about uh, capping the price of oil. So, you know, obviously economics 101 tells us this is a horrible idea. We, we should be doing things honestly. You know, you have to set aside climate change, which obviously is some people are really concerned about. Others not. Depends on, I think, your, what, if you know or if you're heating your home right now and you, you can in, in the dead of winter, then I think it's easier for you to think about climate 10, 15, 20 years out. If you're having problems heating your home this year, then the future climate problems are farther away from your mind. So with that said, I think that uh, – we need to create a world where we can incentivize some supply to come on to that we need as a society, as a global society. We need to incentivize that. We, and at the same time, I think price needs to be able to do its job and ration consumer behavior somewhat. So what we're seeing is this trend to giving consumers subsidies, which is it's not going to help that that price signal to 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 do that. You're not going to get the price killing off demand if you subsidize demand. I'm hearing more about that. And then we're also seeing uh, consistent rumors of excise taxes and price hut freezes and all these different tools, which we've tried before, and they always lead to higher prices because they disincentivize investment. This is an industry that didn't make any money for like a decade. Uh, you know, like the, there was, you know, it was a real lean times. The E&P stocks 
that didn't pay a dividend from 2010 to 2020 lost 90% of their market cap. I mean, this was a nuclear winner for this, this industry. And the investors already don't want to see their money go into the ground without a really short payback period. So if you're a government policymaker, you need to see that reality and then create the preconditions for an investment that will help your constituents. And right now, all that stuff's lacking. Pretty much were. So um, I think that after this interview, if people didn't know you yet, then shame on them. If they didn't know you yet and they listened to you elaborating so nicely and considering as well the situations which your analysis could be wrong, which is one of the common traits amongst the best analysts I know, where can people find more about your work, Warren? Well, um, 314research.com for our, our website. You can put your name in there. We're an institutional research provider. So in general, our clients are money managers, institutional money managers. But, um, you know, if you're interested, put your name in and we can give you some information about the service. Obviously, you can find us on Twitter, social media. There's a uh, underscore or three F underscore research Twitter handle. That's the company. And then, of course, Warren Pies on Twitter. You can find me there. And uh, yeah, those are those are all spots to reach out. Guys, I can only recommend I have received reports from Warren. Top quality stuff. Go and check it out. Follow him on Twitter. Please do. As well, if you want to listen more about this conversation, subscribe to this YouTube channel. And Warren, thank you for being here with us. It's been a very informative chat. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, like I said, longtime fan, great to be on the program. We'll see you soon here again. Ciao, Warren. Thank you. Thank you.